Good evening and welcome to the Hourglass with Isabella. I'm here with the Daniel. Hello. And today we're going to talk about tea. I'm very excited. So as we speak, I am looking at in front of me a beautiful silver antique teapot that Daniel, when did you, you bought it some time ago, didn't you? Yeah, actually I bought this teapot for... For a purpose. Uh, for a purpose. For, I bought it for um, Candy's tea party at Burning Man. Yeah, and it's beautiful. And in fact, when when we first had this particular teapot, it was very kind of rusty looking and t- I guess tarnished. Tarnished, yeah. tarnished is the right the right word for it. It didn't look too good. It's getting tarnished again. You have to you have to polish your silver. And so then Daniel bought a silver polishing kit. And I remember growing up in England that uh, we had a maid. Her name was Jackie, and she used to polish all the silver. And she'd sit there polishing the cutlery. And I thought, how silly. It seemed of a task, but I guess now that I've grown up, I understand that silver tarnishes, and in order to make it look good, you want to polish it. Unless you like tarnished silver. Which some people do. It has a kind of steampunk aesthetic to it, which I think is really cool. But now, and not to be stereotypical as an English topic with the tea, so if you're listening to it, please don't think. I know plenty of Americans that love tea. I love tea. I'm American. Perfect. See, and I know many of my friends who really actually adore it. And I know that the stereotype tends to be coffee is like the American preference and then tea is the British preference. But I strongly believe both can make a beautiful marriage and intermingle. You don't like coffee. I don't. I'm not a coffee fan, but I am a tea fan. Yeah, I think I think growing up, and I'm sure we've all had this moment, where you smelt coffee like your parents were making, and you thought, wow, that sounds amazing. And it smells great, and the aroma of coffee is otherworldly. And then finally, actually, I remember the specific memory. I was in school in England, and we actually had a headmistress, and she had this cup of tea, and I said, um, can I try that? we were out on the playground and she kind of looked at me coffee and I said "Um, can I try it she said "Uh, yeah sure and she gave me a sip and I thought it was the most disgusting thing I'd ever put in my mouth akin to when you've had like your first taste of beer or something I believe coffee is like an acquired taste Certainly so, certainly so. And and to be fair, a lot of people drink their coffee quite adulterated. They they put a lot of milk and sugar and caramel and chocolate. Right. Well, do, let, shall I tell you a bit about the history of tea? Tell me about the history of tea. So it wasn't always a thing in England, believe it or not, as much as we it. believe it is today. And in fact, what happened was we had something called the Restoration that happened and we had a king called Charles and it was like Charles the Great he was the party king he was the guy he's the one who, who brought back Christmas right? yes he brought yes, back parties job. he allowed female equality he's like we can have women on the stage whereas previously when we think of Shakespeare and such there are only men allowed to play women in the theatre which was ridiculous but he said hey I've come over from my exile in France and I've kind of learned all these new cool things and I'm going to bring them back to England and England at the time had been very very Puritan. They had banned Christmas, like you said, and and all, all the enjoyable things and anything sexy was like right out, right no. <laughs> just, just, just as a historical note, this is the time at which they exported all of those puritanical people to and America. Gave them to, <laughs> gave that's them to when us. they came here. It's funny, but that's true because it's a very religious group of people. But then we had the kind of party era where, you know, Charles comes in and he's like, yeah, parties for all. And 
Oh, you know, as we know famously, he had courtesan. You know, please don't let poor Nellie starve. And she was a prostitute slash orange seller. But to get back to the tea, <laughs> the tea topic. She's a prostitute slash orange. Yeah, seller? so in, it's just but you didn't know about no, this. I don't so know in about England, this. well, you've been to Drury Lane because you've taken me to the theatre there. I have. So in America, you have Broadway. Is it is it Broadway in yeah. New York? So New York has Broadway, and in England we have something called Drury Lane, and that's where we have a lot of our plays and theatres, you know, traditionally historically, and what young women would do back in the day and into 1600s, 1700s, even up until the 1800s, actually, they would sell oranges. So they'd have a little box of oranges and they'd be dressed really cutely. They'd look really adorable. But the real reason is they were actually sex workers. And in reality, they were not selling oranges. They were selling their body. But the oranges were a guise that they could get into somewhere like the theatre or stand outside. Yes, so orange sellers traditionally were little girls who were actually oftentimes forced into prostitution because of economic issues at the time. There was a lot of poverty rife in England at that time. But getting back to the tea... So Charles had this lovely mistress, but he was married to um, a Portuguese princess, Portugal she was from, and uh, she enjoyed tea. And she came to the court and she had this particularly strange wig. It was a very large black wig that kind of extended at the sides. So imagine a cropped hairstyle that is very long at the sides. And uh, when she showed up, Charles had a laugh and said, oh, I... I can't tell if I've married a Portugal princess or a bat because she looked a bit... She did. Is this true? Yes, it's a true story. She did look a bit like a bat. But he was still a very good husband and he did love her, even though I don't think it was necessarily a romantic match. He did care for her and took care of her, obviously. So So what year is this? So this, hang on, let me pull up the exact thing for you. But while I'm doing that, let me finish my tea thing. So the point was she, yeah, so pull up Charles, and you'll see it, in fact, will come up there. And that's Charles the second. But, um, yeah, so she loved tea passionately. And she brought tea over to England when it previously was not a fashionable thing. But because, you know, the Queen is obviously very fashionable, she started drinking it with her friends. But the irony is, at the time, England was still very American, like we are today, because they loved coffee. They, they had coffee... Yes, but, okay. but do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They're like Americans. Absolutely, they had coffee houses. Coffee that was houses. The, that was actually the... The center of, of, of political, political hub, yeah. So yeah. the coffee hut was like Starbucks, but back then it was like the political intrigue centers of the world. In fact, it often caused a lot of loose tongue, like loose talk that got people in trouble. Do you have it up there? Because I want to be able to tell the listeners of it. Just the Queen's. What her name? What do you want to know? What you were asking before? I was what asking year? what year? 1662. 1662. There we go. Perfect. Catherine of Braganza. Catherine of Braganza, perfect. So yeah, she loved her tea, and she's actually the one who made tea popular in England in the way it is so. Apparently, she had tea in her dowry. <laughs> tea in her dowry. There you go, perfect. Well, she brought it. That's that's very interesting. I never I never really appreciated she was, that. She's the one who made it popular in a fad in England, and then later, obviously. So was this was this before or after the East India Tea Company? I mean, did the East India Tea Company? That's later. Occur because, because everybody of got that, into tea. Yes, absolutely. So what happens then, moving forward, is we look at the 1800s, which we know as the Victorian era, and people are mad about tea. They are so mad about tea in England and think it's such 
a big deal and an important thing that they will buy tea for their households and they have these little kind of box containers that they store their tea in and of course if you've ever seen loose leaf tea it kind of can have a very dirt-like quality. So what they did to make themselves appear more richer at parties and at tea parties is they'd, they'd invite their friends over, right, for a tea party. And then they'd get actual dirt from the garden and they'd have the cook, right, add the dirt into the tea to make it look like they had more tea than they really did. And then it basically served dirt and tea to their guests. That is a true and strange Victorian fact. Would, would you like me to read you a poem? Yes, please, a tea this is, poem. This is, this is a poem written by the, the hot poet of the time, Edmund Waller. Yes. It was her birthday, and, and, and he wrote this poem, The best of queens and the best of herbs we owe to that bold nation, which the way did show to the fair region where the sun doth rise, whose rich productions we so justly prize. That's lovely. Yes. It's interesting in America you guys say I, I didn't herbs. realize that. You say, uh, you say herbs. Sorry. You want me to say herbs? And we say herbs. Yeah. No, I think both are completely, perfectly fine. But it's herbs or herbs. Hmm. Harry Potter and the magical herbs. So was this because, was, was, was Portugal then importing them from, they, might, they must have, right? From, Absolutely. From, from China. It became a big deal. And what, in fact, you guys may know about tea bricks which are, are more solid. It actually comes in a brick and you kind of shave it off to make your tea. And the reason I mean, why, did, I mean, when they were importing from China that they used tea bricks, yeah, yeah. is because it allowed it to keep dry and to keep it stacked in an orderly fashion. But these days we don't really do tea bricks anymore. I, like, I have a tea brick. We oh, do own one. And what was nice is they were very, Where? very ornate. So you'd have your large, kind of like and if you think of a, yeah. a tissue box size, and they would stamp the top usually with filigree, very pretty kind of designs and floral designs. I really want the chateau to have its own custom tea brick. I think that's great. We should do that. 100% agree. Now, let me ask you a question. Mm. What's your favorite tea and why? Well, the why, it's, this is actually going to be, this is probably going to be embarrassing. I mean, my favorite tea is obviously, I don't know if it's obvious, but it's Earl Grey, right? And it, and it probably comes from the fact that that's what Jean-Luc Picard orders. Tea, Earl okay. Grey, hot. hot. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I do actually have an affection for for many other teas. I like I like Darjeeling. I like a nice oolong. I think it depends a lot on my mood and obviously what I have in the house. Um, I'd like to become wiser in the ways of tea. Do you remember once upon a time we were in uh, some hot springs at Valley View and we encountered a tea monk? We did. It was a lovely story. Yes, he just wandered around. He apparently traveled selling like rare teas or, or something along these lines. I think it's really great. I'm a little saddened, actually. Slightly sad. Why are you sad? Oh, I just thought I knew your favorite tea, and then I guess I didn't. You don't think I my think... favorite tea is Earl Grey? No, I didn't think it what was. What do you think my favorite tea is? I thought your favorite tea was jasmine. Ah, but yes. But I guess it's not. No, no, so no. I think I... I no, no, no. I... <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. No, no. So, so, that's, so that's, that, that is an interesting thing. That is an interesting thing. So... When, when I first met you many years ago, I, 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 when I met you and we would talk on the phone because you lived in England we were long distance and I lived here, point, yeah. I, I developed a, a habit of drinking not just jasmine tea, right, but jasmine pearl, pearl tea, tea, which yes. I can't get anymore, at least not conveniently. Why? Uh, it doesn't. They don't. They don't. The brand doesn't make it anymore. Whatever it was, oh, it was like Rishi brand or something. They don't. They don't have it in the grocery store anymore. Otherwise, I would drink it probably daily. But because I don't, it does have this beautiful 
I, it's you know it's this beautiful memory of seduction for me. The the Attached jasmine the, the jasmine pearl tea, and I've not been able to find one that was as good since. Uh, I got some jasmine pearl tea several years ago from the Asian market, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't quite as aromatic. So you know what I'm a big fan of. What are you a big fan of? The flowering teas. Oh yes, how delightful! We have a we have some. We have a, a, a glass teapot, and you can put the flower in, and it blossoms. I really love that scene in uh, Marie Antoinette. Isn't that what it is? Yes. Yeah, and she has, and she, and she's entertaining, and, and the guy. There's an a, there's an ambassador. He brings one of these flowering teas, and the thing is, if you have that glass teapot, then you can see through it, and you put the blossom, which is closed up, into the hot water. And then very slowly it unfurls its petals. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. There is nothing like an oil. If you've not done that, I would highly suggest it. Yeah, I like I like teas that unfurl. The one thing the one thing I did find about the jasmine pearl tea that I think is beautiful about it is that you you really have to steep it for kind of just the right amount of time. Otherwise, it gets it gets quite bitter. Now everybody says that's where all the good stuff comes out, but I don't enjoy it nearly as much. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I'm also quite a fan of mint teas. So peppermint tea spearmint winter mint you know all of so, those so here's, things here's an interesting question about tea so and i didn't know this until until fairly recently but uh so so tea is actually a plant right it's a i mean it's a it's a bush it's a shrub right the tea brush it's camellia right my camellia my camellia uh you know greenhouse for for bring for making my my teas right and um but not all teas are in fact camellia not all teas actually have that. Have that. Most teas are uh, like jasmine tea is actually camellia plus jasmine flowers, um, but things like um, mint obviously is not tea. But you can still make a mint tea out of it. I guess my definition for tea is: can you take something and steep it in water right. that is leaf-like and create an essence from it? Right. Well, then what would be the difference between that and coffee? No, so coffee is its own thing. Is coffee coffee tends tea? to be beans that are grinded down, and it's a different kind of process, but still similar in many ways. And so, for an example, one tea I really do enjoy is actually kratom, which is a very new kind of thing for us in the West market. It's actually been very popular in Thailand for many years, and it has this beautiful kind of euphoric aphrodisiac quality to it. And much like how when we originally had weed or marijuana in America, it was something that people feared a lot of time because they didn't understand the plant or its natural qualities. Likewise, Kratom has kind of gone the same way. And in fact, right now, it's completely legal to get in America. You can buy it in most states, which is wonderful. And it's a fantastic pain-relieving quality. You know, a really good thing. So I'm quite a fan of that. It's interesting that, I mean, you know, tea is obviously popular because of its stimulant uh, properties. Right. right? And so actually, here's an interesting thing. We talk about crossovers. Kratom is actually part of the caffeine plant family. Oh, is it it related to coffee? Yeah, it's actually a, so it in fact is a stimulant uh, in terms of a plant part of it. And in fact, they have different strains. So you'll get something like the red leaf strain, which is a darker leaf, which produces more like anti-anxiety, relaxing qualities versus like a white or green leaf, which is going to make you more active and spontaneous and have a better workflow kind of thing. And it reminds me actually like when we talk about weed and we should actually have a whole Colorado based episode dedicated to that how you'll have different strains of weed and you've got like well it's a funny thing because that at least to me is only a very it's a very new concept right when I was in when I was in college you know we would get 
you you know brickweed <laughs> or like some kind or maybe some hash but that's i mean that that was it there was no there was no real sense of of strains at least when i was in college i have a terrible terrible drug story that i can now relay on the podcast but it's hilarious when i was a little girl and by little girl i mean a teenager i thought i was really cool i had all these friends and i was very popular so we all went down to camden market one day which is a uh, alternative district in London, or at least was. Yeah, exactly. And I thought, because of course at this time, shrooms were legal in England, much like they're actually legal now here in Colorado, which is awesome. But back then you could buy kind of shrooms on the street. You could get mushroom tea, mushroom soup, you know, these the magic mushroom kind. And uh, that was really cool, but I wanted to get my friend some hash, some weed. And so I went into this golf shop, you know, and... I'm this, you know, little, I think I was like 15 or 16, and I got up to this guy and I'm like, hey, you know, do you have any weed? And he kind of looks at me and he's just like, yeah, I've got some weed. Do you want to buy it from me? And I was like, yes, please. He's like, wait right here. I'm going to go get it. It will cost you 50 pounds. This is nearly like $100, right, at the time for a very small quantity. I readily paid for money. He gives me this small bag of what looks like weed you know we're all very excited me and my friends we jump on the train and we get home and we go back to my parents house and we go up into the attic and we're kind of sitting there this forbidden package of weed you know and we take it out and we're putting it I actually had a pipe like a hash pipe type thing and some people were rolling it up they'd use old train tickets to roll it up into kind of like a blunt and we're smoking it and it didn't take long to realize that it was actually grass clippings and not weed at all and we'd been fooled by the guy in the store who kind of opened his jacket and was like you want some weed next, <laughs> next time you see my old friend Andreas you should ask him about does he have weed, a similar story weed on the street in New Orleans he bought himself a cigarette pack of grass clippings. grass clippings I guess it was easy money and I, I think it's actually hilarious looking back on it <laughs> but anyway going back to the tea topic which is the the main topic of today I'm sorry about the wind. We're sitting outside on the porch of the chateau and it's a beautiful day, but we actually had, it's June, and we had snow here this morning. We did. Which is insane. <laughs> Do you know what my favorite TV-related uh, tea thing is? What is your favorite TV-related tea thing? So there's a, a show called Over the Garden Wall, and they actually have a whole episode dedicated to a chap who yes. makes tea in his large stately mansion voiced by John Cleese by John Cleese and he falls in love with a ghost and it's actually a real I won't spoil the plot but if you've not seen Over the Garden Wall you absolutely yes. should it's a great cute little animation I feel, I feel like we need a, a Camellia Greenhouse we absolutely do then you could then you could actually make your own Chateau Tea wouldn't it be great if we did have a Chateau Tea yeah I just think that would be such a beautiful product for real so it's a funny thing, I think there are different kinds of like tea rituals and one of my favorite ones is obviously in Japan they have the geisha and they actually have a tea ceremony and every single part of it is broken down and broken into this beautiful creative process where even how you pour the tea and your posture and stance affects the whole ceremony and I'm has sure that it's very... creative i mean it's actually so precise that it doesn't allow for any creativity no but i think but it was yes, it was it. meant to be creative like the thing is you have you know a beautiful geisha um 
geiko omeka right doing doing the ceremony yeah. and it's the artfulness and the precision in that i think is very artful. i've always wanted to have a tea house i've always been fascinated by it i think by the fact that it's just it's a it's a very precisely sort of defined structure yeah so so it's it's very appealing to me to build one in our yard so we used to have one actually in england at my parents estate there used to be um when i was growing up picture this so you've got the main house and you've got the gardens and then in the back there's actually a river which is called the ford so ford is like a shallow kind of river and in the middle of the river was an island and there was this beautiful ornate little bridge that you could cross to get to the island and some of you may know this some of you may not but i really liked archaeology and actually studied egyptology growing up but that foundation of archaeology was spent a lot of my time my youth kind of excavating things in the garden and finding antiques burying and burying things i found a, a victorian antique pocket watch that was gold one time uh, we found a a bombshell from world war 2 one time like all sorts of crazy awesome things in the garden and this island always fascinated me because i wondered what it, what its original purpose was like on the side there was a medieval eel trap but it actually survived because it used to be a rectory which was owned by monks so they had all these things to kind of feed the monks and there was a beautiful herb Do garden you still eat eel in england yes people eat eel all the time and especially in east london you'll get pickled eel eel <laughs> stored in in liquids yeah it's a very it's a very popular street food um that much like my favorites winkles and welks and <laughs> oysters and things what a lot of people don't know this and we could have a whole episode dedicated to oysters but oysters were originally a poor man's food in yeah. Victorian London you could buy them on the street very cheaply yeah, we watched that whole movie about that oyster girl yeah the oyster girl it's a very sexy lesbian movie you definitely watch it if you're not <laughs> uh but it was it was poor man's food that was easily gotten from from street fair food which i think's awesome today it's become a delic a delicacy and it's a lot more expensive but back then it was one of the cheapest easier things to obtain but yeah going back to the tea and, and the story about my house i had this strange mysterious island and it turned out there are a lot of foundations and stuff on the island that indicated it actually used to be an oriental tea house so there was this whole movement in the late 1800s of orientalism and it was very popular in victorian england a little bit culturally appropriationy but it was popular to take Entirely the tea yeah but i'm just trying to <laughs> delicately phrase it it was popular to take you know the the tea house aesthetic and put yeah. it in your back gar- garden wall appreciating the architectural aesthetic of another culture Absolutely. i don't think it was done in malicious context but did they have a lack of understanding of cultural appropriation like we unlike we do today yes i think that was very much a thing but i just think it was lovely the concept of having a tea garden in your house i would love to have a tea house here and yeah, we could think, make it western and gorgeous you know we'd have our own little chateau tea house and we could sit in there and enjoy some here. hot springs would be amazing and in fact we do have a natural well here so i feel like we could maybe get something like that would be really cool and i love hot spring culture and it is very tied in the japanese onsen baths are very tied in with tea culture and i like that both british and japanese culture do entwine beautifully with tea and it's ingrained even so the concept you know of tiffin is very that popular the actual tea ceremony actually came from china mm-hmm. in the in the song dynasty and and it got taken to japan and and refined the way that it did and it took a kind of completely different course in in china uh they don't they don't really do it anymore and it's oh, not, they don't. it's, okay, it's, not, it's not nearly as as much of a culture thing but they still thing. do love 
They love they their green. They love their green tea in China, right? Mm-hmm. They really do. And there's some gorgeous teas that get imported directly from China. Absolutely. And in fact, one of my favorite establishments, and that noise in the background, is the hummingbirds. They like to come and have their feed. They were a little crossed by the snow this morning. They hated the snow. But anyway, we have this local lovely establishment, and it's actually a tea shop, and it's based in Colorado Springs. It's called the Colorado Springs Herbal Company. And it's actually situated in a little old Victorian house, and they have every tea you could imagine under the sun, like anything you want, they have. I, I used to joke that we go down to see the tea witch, and then it turns out yes. that actually there's also a tea warlock. A warlock. <laughs> He's actually totally a warlock. And both the people who <laughs> run really, it, they're, they're really fascinating, but they're also really nice people. And I think ultimately that's what I love about tea and the culture it develops so much, is it's something that people can share together in a moment, and it creates bonding. And I think that's why tea parties have been so important over the years, which leads me into the topic of Alice in Wonderland. Ah. Yes. Well, now we're back to where we started with uh, with, the with mad, Candy's uh, the mad Hatter. Uh, Alice in Wonderland tea party. It's, it's a perfect circle, which is good, because we're almost out of time. So I think Alice in Wonderland takes all of that Victorian love for tea and incorporates it into the madness that is Lewis Carroll's book. And I think the whole concept of the Mad Hatter and that tea party is so quintessentially beautiful to everything that is English and has set this, yes, it's a bit of a stereotype, but at the same time, it's such a romantic notion. This must be why you, you, you have, are such a fan of mismatching saucers and teacups. I am. He, oh, he gets mad at me like every day for this, you know, and, and actually goes back to the topic I completely <laughs> misled earlier was about tea ceremonies and structure was obviously I think Americans have a really good concept. And if you think about this, you probably have a really good concept of what you imagine tea stereotypically is in England, which is high tea, which is where you get the little stacked tiered uh, plates and there's little sandwiches without crusts on them and you know, egg sandwiches, and, you know, I'd pray for some Marmite in there. I make there, a pretty good high tea, incidentally. Yes, yeah, so, and then some cookies, as you call it, or as we call them in England, a cookie is actually a biscuit. Yes. And what you call a biscuit in our country is actually a scone. So in your country, scones are triangular, like a triangle. He's actually opening some biscuits in the some, background. Some digestive biscuits. Yeah, I'm sure you can have a wrapper very loud. The wrapper is what it sounds like. It's, it's audio effects. It's audio effects. But yes, in, so in America, scones are triangular yeah. for tea time. In England, scones are round and are basically your southern biscuits. Like, they are practically identical in my mind. And you'll have that with a why double they, why, clotted why cream. Why do they have a stone of scone? Stone of scone. So the stone of scone is a stone which was... Does it look like a scone? It, no, it looks like a stone. It's named because of the location, stone of scone. It's scone a place? Yes, it is. So the Stone of Scone was a small block with an in, kind of an ingrained chisel in it, and it actually used to sit. It was Scottish. It used to sit under the Scottish throne, and uh, actually the Stone of Scone was stolen by the English from Scotland to England, where it sat under the British throne. And I, I almost feel like I'd heard a rumor. I don't know at all if this is true, but it had been returned at some point. Let's have a look. But so the point are, is, are scones named after the stone? 
Stone of Scone, here we go. Known, known also as the Stone of Destiny or the Coronation Stone. Wow, Stone of Destiny. Is an oblong block of red sandstone that has been used for centuries in the coronation of England. Here's the people ask, where is the Stone of Scone now? See, it's back to Scotland. Back Good to job. Scotland. It now resides in Edinburgh Castle. It's made available for future coronation ceremonies at Westminster Abbey, which makes sense because it's so important. It's made available for when there's going to be a King of Scotland. Rumours persist. <laughs> Rumours persist, however, in Scotland that a rock taken by King Edward I was a replica and that the monks at Scone, which is actually a place that's an abbey, Did they invent hid, the stone? that they hid the real actual stone in a river or buried it for safekeeping. Now, that's wow, a, that's that's a, a cool fascinating story. way to end this topic, I think, don't yeah, you think? Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, the Stone of Scone. I wasn't expecting to go there with the tea conversation, but... But there's so, that's a great thing, so we talk about scones. Oh, I was going to finish, I've got to finish, we've got two minutes, so mm-hmm. we're okay. To get back to the actual point, I was telling you guys to imagine in your head what you think... No, what you... Oh. Well, what you think British tea ceremony is, what you think high tea is in your mind, right, which is those I think it's platter. what I do at Brown Palace. Yes, so in, in Brown Palace is a beautiful venue in Denver, for those of you that don't know, and they offer an amazing high tea on the weekends. And you Every get day. champagne, and it's actually in the parlor of the, the lobby of the hotel, and they have a little tiered thing, and it's really beautiful. But I took Daniel to England one time, and I think I kind of shocked him. <laughs> Do you want me to tell the story? With what tea actually so, is? Yeah, go for it. So we, we, go, we go to Amberley, which is this cute little town, and they have it's a castle. castle. Yep. And, and we go to this like and this ancient, is in West Sussex. ancient tea shop. I mean, like you know, like you know, fifteenth century or something like this. And we go in, and and I order tea, and I order and I order scones, and and she orders sausage roll and, and a lemonade, lemonade being Sprite. And I and I got so upset with her because I was like, you're not doing this right at all. You have to have tea and scones. But it turns out that. You know, well, I had tea too at this point. You got mad that I'd ordered a Sprite, Sprite with it and a sausage roll. Sausage roll. Inappropriate. And what I was trying to explain to him is that in England, and in fact, I took him to a National Trust property, and he was shocked that we were sitting on uh, plastic, plastic chairs, chairs. Plastic garden chairs. Drinking it's everywhere. tea. It's everywhere. So the point is not about the sausage roll nor the uh, Sprite. The point is that in England, tea is so ingrained into our That's culture. Right. It doesn't have to be pomp and stance. It doesn't have to be the whole crazy, you know, high class idea that it's very stuck up. But like, you insist that it does exist there, though. Of course it does. Yeah. Like, you can go to... I mean, you can go to Harvey Nicks in England, which is a store. You can go to Harrods and you'll get some really nice high tea. If you're looking for that, you can get it. But if you go to a National Trust property, which is the National Trust takes care of the beautiful castles and estates in England. <laughs> they Trust have, takes the castles. They take, well, they, but they also take <laughs> yes. care of them and sometimes restore them, which is important That's for English history. We won't go into my godfather's <laughs> state on this particular podcast. That's a future podcast. But, but they yeah. also had tea, just so you know. But in fact, right. it affects, so what I want to point out before this ends is that in England, it's such a normalized part of culture that you'll just be in your home with your family and you'll have a cup of tea. Four right. o'clock comes around, it's like tiffin time and you have tea. I think also tea. an important aspect of it is that you will offer it to guests. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a family... Like cup of tea is, yeah. a, is actually an expression. Family bonding thing. And I'll give you guys some 
Anglophile thing here. When you're in England and you have the tea and you're offering it to a friend, it doesn't matter if they're American or from the UK, you basically say, shall I be mother or will you? And basically, whoever is playing mother is the person who pours the tea. So that's a fun thing for you guys to have as we finish up our beautiful tea conversation, which honestly, I really enjoyed. Did you? I enjoyed it as well. And I hope you guys learned some interesting facts along the way as we rambled about our tea. And uh, And that's the tea. And that's the tea. That's a pretty good catchphrase. Yeah, I'm still working on my catchphrase. And that's the tea. (laughs) 